Matthew chapter 10. Finish this chapter up today. And last week we went with the Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 26. And there was, we talked about a few things in this section, but what was the, what was the one main thing that we talked about regarding verse uh, 23? First, no, no, wasn't the main thing we talked about. The main thing we talked about was whether the Son of Man had returned yet or not. And what were some reasons I gave that proved from other scriptures the Son of Man has not? Because people were trying to use this verse. Remember I talked about the people called the preterist. They tried to use this verse. They tried to use this verse to say that Jesus came back in AD 70 secretly, spiritually, not in bodily form. But what were some of the problems with them saying something like that? Were, Jenna? The falling away had to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, what else has to happen besides the falling away before Christ comes back? Jenna? The Antichrist has to be revealed. The man of perdition must be revealed. Those things have not happened yet. What else? Jenna? That's right. The sun will be darkened and the moon will turn to blood. The cosmic signs in the heavens, those things have not happened yet either. Anything else? Jenna? Battle of Armageddon. Okay. Anything else? Jenna? False prophets. That's right. The false teachers will arise. The two witnesses, they haven't shown up yet. Uh, who will see Jesus coming? Will it be secretly or, or will it be openly? And who will see it? Everyone. Why? As the east is from the west. Lightning comes. Everyone will see his coming. And those who see his coming who are not in the side, what's some things they will say? John? Rocks fall on us. Yeah, his enemies didn't see his coming. And uh, one major thing that has not happened, the whole earth has not been evangelized yet. Until that happens, he will not come back. And one other thing regarding the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, which is when the Antichrist will come into the temple of God and declare himself to be God. That hasn't happened yet. What's that? The temple hasn't been established. Obviously, if the temple hasn't been established, as John was saying, that can't even happen. So the temple has to come first for the abomination of desolation to actually happen. So there's no way that he came back in A.D. 70, as the preterists tried to say. So we need to be aware of that false teaching as well. Uh, it denies Christ's bodily second coming. It denies Christ's 1,000-year reign before the eternal reign. Uh, it denies that the Antichrist has to come back first, uh, come first and reveal himself and there's a falling away. It denies all of those things. Okay, today we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 27 through verse 42. Jesus says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies were those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man, and name of a righteous man, shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose 
his reward. Okay, so verse 27 is a very clear picture of what should happen when you know the truth. A picture of evangelism. What I tell you in the dark, we should, and we should have times when we're in the dark with Jesus. Our prayer closet time, the times we're in the word by ourselves, not with family members or friends, but we're in the word by ourselves, privately, in our closet, in this secret place. And what you and, and the second part could could basically be say what you hear whispered in the ear. Some translations will even say that. Uh, so when Jesus speaks to you, what you know the Bible says in your private time with him, you're to speak it in the light, daylight, for everyone to hear, and to preach from the housetops. Now, obviously, we may not be able to get it literally on top of a housetop and preach. Okay, uh, You have to understand, back in those days, their houses were low to the ground, rarely ever were they two or three stories, and they usually had a flatter roof. So he did mean literally for them to preach from the housetops. Um, but the practical application for us would be we need to preach so as many people as possible can hear. That's the whole point. We have the truth. We're meant to share it with others. The problem with this, the problem you're going to run into with preaching the truth, that you've learned in the darkness, that you've heard in the ear, that they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. Most people are not going to like what you have to say even those who claim to belong to the light, even those who claim to be Christians, will not always like what you have to say. And many times throughout my Christian life, I've had to go through periods of this, personally. I'll give you some testimony here. You know, when I first became a Christian, uh, the first Christian in my family, and I went to my mom's side of the family at Christmas time and told them all the truth, and they all rejected me. Told me I was crazy, I was going through a phase, didn't know what I was talking about. And then I, I started to understand more about theology and how Calvinism was false. I started to come out against that. And a lot of my friends rejected me. And recently I started talking about open-air preaching, how we're supposed to be blameless before the world and different things that make us not blameless before the world. And people are rejecting me for that. So you're gonna, if you continue in the faith and you preach from the housetops what you hear in the ear and you speak in the light what you hear in the darkness and you do it with boldness and courage without concerning with yourself what men are going to think of you, they will reject you to the point of possibly wanting to kill you. But Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body. Rather, it cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him is able to destroy both body, a soul and body in hell. You know, Matthew chapter 5, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, in verses 10 through 12 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, the people who bring accusations against the preachers of righteousness, they bring false accusations usually because they can't find anything to say about them because they're being blameless. So they bring false accusations instead. And we need to make sure that as Christians, we're not on the wrong side of the fence regarding these accusations. We should always give people the benefit of the doubt. We shouldn't assume the worst about someone. Especially if you're hearing it from a second-hand source. If someone comes to me and says something bad about one of my friends, should I automatically believe it? Should I even bother taking the time to listen to them? I should tell them, listen, if you have a problem with him, go take it up with him. And if I think there's any kind of legitimacy to what they're saying, I will go to my friend myself and say, listen, is there any truth to this? I'm going to give them the benefit of doubt. I'm not going to go around making false accusations about people just because I heard someone say something about them. So we need to be careful. We're not on the wrong side of the fence. We're not the ones actually doing the persecution falsely saying things about people as they're standing for righteousness. This is don't fear those who can kill them. Let's look at uh, Isaiah 51. This is a scripture I've been meditating on lately due to some things that I've been going through. Isaiah 51. Look at verse 7. Isaiah 51, 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, 
You people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. For my righteousness will be forever, will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. And down to verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? Of the son of man who is made like grass. There's lots of reasons why we shouldn't be afraid of men. One is because they're just another man. What can they really do to you? The worst they can do to you is, is, is kill you. That's the worst they can do to you. And so that's one reason not to be afraid. And another reason Jesus gives here is because you should fear God instead. And the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. And to fear man is to not fear God. To fear God is to not fear man. You can't have them both. It's either or. It's either or. As the days get darker and times get worse and worse and, and sin gets worse and worse in our days, it's going to get worse and worse for us. So we need to make sure we have, a, we have that fear of God instilled in us and that we're not fearing man, no matter what they threaten with or want to do to us. Uh, we shouldn't fear them. And Romans 8 gives another reason why we shouldn't fear uh, men. Romans chapter 8, we'll look at verses 31 through 39. So we shouldn't fear man because they're just man. We shouldn't fear man because we should fear God instead. And verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yet I am persuaded neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one can separate you from the love of God. No one can force you away from Christ. Of course, you can walk away from Christ yourself. But the whole point of Romans 8 is to prove that when it comes to peril and tribulation and sword and persecution and distress and famine and nakedness, these things, when these things happen to us, we shouldn't say, well, God doesn't love us. Yes, He does. And those things don't separate us from His love. And what people can do to us can't separate us from His love. It's only us giving in to sin and departing from the faith. That can save us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can separate us from the love of God, so we shouldn't fear men for that either. You know, verse 28 says, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now this past Tuesday, I went to this thing in Nashville. Uh, there's a guy named Rob Bell. He's a pastor in Michigan, and he is teaching people that he's not sure whether hell is forever, and he thinks people might have a chance for forgiveness after they die. And even that uh, people, since hell's not forever, people just end up being destroyed. In other words, obliterated. Destroyed in that sense. Not destroyed as if you keep on being punished forever and ever, but destroyed in the literal sense where... <laughs> You stop being punished eventually. It's called annihilationism. So he's teaching this doctrine of annihilationism, which says that eventually your experience in hell will end if you're an unbeliever, because hell is not eternal. But I want to look at this this top this topic this this morning, and I want to bring up some scriptures. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse seven through nine. Very important scripture regarding whether. When the Bible uses the word destroy in relation to hell, or the word destruction in relation to hell, does it mean literal destruction, obliteration, cease to exist? Does it mean that? 
Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So we see here, he says, everlasting destruction. So there's no way that Paul could be talking about annihilationism being obliterated, ceasing to exist in, in hell at some point in time, because it's an everlasting destruction. And um, the word for everlasting simply means a uh, period of unending duration, forever, perpetual, everlasting, an unlimited duration of time. That's what it means. It doesn't mean it's going to end at some point in time. Everlasting means exactly what the word says. It means everlasting. It's going to last forever. It's never going to stop. So the word destruction, from my study of it, uh, it comes from the Greek word opilomai, and it means to render unsuitable for the use originally intended. Let me say it again. It's a Greek word, opilomai, and it means to render unsuitable for the use originally intended. So the use that human beings were originally intended for was not hell. Same with angels. They weren't originally intended to go to hell. That wasn't God's original intention towards them. The original intention towards God is that angels would have be in fellowship with him forever and ever, and same with every human being. So destruction never, and I've looked through many verses, it never means to annihilate or to cease to exist. When this Greek word is used in the Bible, it never means that. And let me give you some examples where it's very clear that it couldn't possibly mean that. Let's go to Matthew 2.12. give you one example here. I'll give, I'll give you like uh, about four examples here. Uh, where this word is used, that it proves that this word can't mean cease to exist. This word is translated as destroy or destruction. Uh, Matthew 2.12 is the first one we're looking at. It couldn't possibly mean destroy in the sense of ceasing to exist. couldn't mean that. So Matthew 2.12, we have Herod rising up, wants to kill all the babies, all two and under, because he wants to get rid of Jesus, the Messiah, who he heard about through the, the wise men. And then in Matthew 2.12 says, Then being divinely warned, talking about Joseph, in a dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country. Another way, that's verse 12. And then it says um, in verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now does a human being have the power to annihilate another human being? To make him cease to exist? So this word is used here in reference to what Herod wants to do to, the, to Jesus. And what, is it, what does it literally mean he's trying to do? kill them. Just trying to kill them. And we all know when someone dies, they don't cease to exist. They're still existing. So that's one example of how this word can't mean cease to exist. And we have uh, Matthew 12 and verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, that's Jesus, how they might destroy him. So the Pharisees have the ability to... Uh, annihilate Jesus Christ? Does anyone have the ability to annihilate Jesus Christ? That's another example. And then we go to Mark chapter 4 and verse 38. And this is when the, the great windstorm was in the boat and Jesus was sleeping. And in verse 38 it says, But he was in the stern, talking about Jesus, asleep on a pillow. And he woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And the word perish there is the same word behind the Greek word, same Greek word behind the word destroy or destruction. And uh, are they saying that they're going to be obliterated and cease to exist because of the winds and waves? Not possible. Not possible. And then one more, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. And this is talking about the Old Testament. 
And Paul's giving the Old Testament example of the Jews to say don't follow on their example. And um, it says in verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Now let's talk about the serpents in the desert who bit them, and they wouldn't go to the serpent to get healed from it. So they ended up dying because of it. And the only, the only solution they had to not dying from the bite of a snake was to go look at the bronze snake and they would be healed. And have faith in that, what God said. Now, do those snakes have the power, the power to obliterate, to cause a human being to cease to exist? Of course not. So these are four examples of the way this word is used. The word is translated as destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And the word translated as destroy in Matthew 10, 28. The same Greek word in all four of these examples Obvious to me, it does not mean obliterate, cease to exist, or annihilate. So that's out the window. Destroy doesn't mean that when the Bible uses that. When and translators translate a Greek word, a as destroy, it does not mean destroy, cease to exist. Uh, then we have uh, Revelation chapter 19, getting back to whether hell is eternal or not. Revelation chapter 19. So we throw in the idea that destroy, the language of destroy in the Bible means to obliterate or cease to exist. But now we're going to continue to talk about eternal. We saw that 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 meant everlasting destruction, unending, enduring, everlasting, perpetual. Revelation 19, 20. Then the beast, that's the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So they're, they're cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, the Antichrist and the false prophet. But then we go down to Revelation 20.10. At the end of the thousand-year reign, Satan's released again for a short period of time. He rises up to deceive the nations again. At the very end, the, you know, the breath of uh, Jesus, the fire came down from heaven, from God of heaven, to devour them. And in verse 10 it says, Revelation 20, the devil who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, figure this out here. Revelation 19.20, the beast and the false prophet are cast into hell. Over a thousand years later, a thousand years later, they're still there. They're still there. And then the devil's cast into the same exact place they're cast in, and it says he will be there forever and ever tormented day and night forever and ever so yes when you go to hell you will not get out you'll be there for good there'll be no second chance after death and to give you to give you more proof that there's no second chance of death let's read from verse 11 of Revelation 20 it says then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there's found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's not like a second chance there. Judgment day. It doesn't say that, okay, now those of you who, who died and who were living and waiting in the lower part of Hades now, I'm going to give you another chance now. No, if your name is not written in the book of life, you're cast into the lake of fire. I want the rest of the dead whose name is not written in the book of life. So we see this is forever and ever. Go ahead, brother. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say Revelation 14 alludes to the same thing. And starting in verse 10, I'm not sure about the chronology of this, but... Uh, starting in verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength. In a couple of his indignations, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, the presence of the holy angels, the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. He worship the beast and they shall receive the mark of, uh, of his name. Amen. Forever and ever. The smoke of the torment. Now, if they cease to exist, why would the smoke continue to rise forever and ever? If they cease to exist, there's, no more, there's no, nothing else to burn up. And you, when, you're, when I'm cooking something on the grill, there's only smoke and there's something to burn. You know, whether it's you know, pieces of meat or grease from the time before, or whether it's the actual burgers or hot dogs on there themselves, no smoke will come out of that thing if there's nothing to burn inside of it. So the smoke of the terminal will rise forever and ever, day and night, no rest day or night, because there's still people there. 
And then we see in uh, Matthew 25. And something we must get down and must learn, not only get it down for ourselves, but learn how to defend it, because lots of people are being deceived by people like Rob Bell. And people like Brian McLaren. These may not sound familiar to you, but they become more familiar to you as you grow up in, in, in your faith. Matthew 25, and verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Everlasting fire. Once again, why, if someone is, if everyone's going to be eventually annihilated, including the devil and the angels and the false prophet and, and the beast, if they'll eventually be annihilated, why have an everlasting fire? That's a waste of flames. Verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment. Well, that's why there's everlasting fire, because everlasting punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Now here, this brings up a good point here. Because for those who believe in annihilationism, they don't believe that the saints eternal life will, let, will end. They think it'll last forever. Yet in this verse 46, everlasting eternal is the same word in the Greek, and hermeneutics force us to be consistent here that if the, the, the unrighteous are not going to have everlasting punishment, then the righteous will not have everlasting life. Now you have a really big problem. Because eventually our life will, will be, and everyone's going to be annihilated eventually now. But the fact is, we will have everlasting life, eternal life, and they will have everlasting punishment. So they're, what they're saying does not match up to what the Bible says. Let's go to one verse in, in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12. In verse 1 and 2, At that time, Michael, the archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. This will be a time of trouble. So it never was since there was a nation, even to that time. At the time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So once again, if you're going to apply, apply everlasting to life, for those who are, have everlasting life, it must be the same thing with those who have everlasting contempt. They're abhorrence, abhorrence in God's eyes, what contempt means. And then uh, one more, Jude chapter 7, regarding whether this is everlasting or not. Jude chapter 7. Uh, not chapter 7, Jude verse 7, I mean. There's no chapters in Jude. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So when Sodom and Gomorrah will destroy with fire from heaven, it wasn't just a one-time thing. The people who were destroyed with that, was fi that fire are going to be an eternal fire. As an example to those who would come after them. Not to be sexually immoral, not to go after strange flesh, not to be homosexuals, not to be sodomites, to be pure in God's eyes. And then there's this issue of uh, Mark chapter 8, or Mark chapter 9, I'm sorry, verses 43 through 48. And if any passage is as clear as a bell, this is one of them. And uh, Mark, Mark 9, 43 through 48. It says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed, rather than having two hands go, that go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to, to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Now the word quenched simply means to put out, um, to extinguish. You take a fire extinguisher, you see a fire, you put it out. But it says it will never, ever be quenched. It's basically saying it's inextinguishable. And the, the Greek word used here for never quenched is asbestos. Which is kind of ironic because asbestos used to be used in old buildings as a flame retardant. So the house wouldn't catch on fire as easily. 
But the word for abestos it comes from this must be coming from this word. It's spelled exactly the same in the Greek language. You transliterate it, it will never be quenched. Yeah. Never be quenched. So abestos actually tries to quench the fire, but asbestos in the Greek says never be quenched. Inextinguishable. It won't go out. It lasts forever and ever. And you know, in Matthew three twelve, John the Baptist talked about this. He talked about. It. Let me just read that one more verse, and then we'll continue on in Matthew ten. Matthew three twelve. John the Baptist said, "And his winning fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Nothing can put the flames of hell out. Not even the false doctrines of Rob Bell." Or the false doctrine of teachers like him, who are saying that the that people will be annihilated eventually. Not true. So you shouldn't fear people because you should fear God instead. You shouldn't fear people because they can't separate from the love of God. You shouldn't fear people because what can they really do to you anyway? Compared to what God could do to you if you do fear them and depart from the fear of God and go their way. And give in to their threats or their insults or their false accusations against you. And he also going to say uh, another reason why you shouldn't fear them because you are more valuable than sparrows. Two sparrows are sold for a copper coin, which is basically the equivalency of two pennies. If something is sold for two pennies, surely you are more important to God than that. In fact, you're so important to God that God knows every single hair on your head, no matter how few or how many you have. God knows every hair on your head. And not one hair from your head can fall apart from God's will. It's like not one sparrow can fall apart from God's will. So if trouble comes upon you and you haven't brought it upon yourself through ungodliness, God's, brought it, God's allowed it for a reason. It's not so you can depart from the faith and give in to it. It's to refine you. Draw you closer to him. Make you more like him because Jesus went through lots of suffering. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to go through suffering. You know, Jesus, everyone left him on a day on his day of arrest? Everyone. All of his friends left him. So don't be surprised if in the future your closest friends leave you. Even the ones who you consider Christians. Don't be surprised if they reject you. Don't be surprised. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now, confession is just saying, Jesus. No, it's going back to verse 27. When I tell you in the dark, you speak in the light. When you hear whispered in the ear, you preach in the housetops. Because you don't have to deny Jesus like Peter did. You can deny him by your silence. By your very silence. And it may be harder for some of us to speak up than others. Some may have the gift of gab, as they like to call it. I don't have that. I never have. I'm not an extroverted person. I'm not a real bubbly personality. I'm very introverted. I don't, I don't really like talking to people that much. I'm not a natural preacher in that sense. But I got out of my comfort zone because I love God and want to keep his commandments, because I know the reality of hell, and because I love sinners. That's it. So you don't have to deny Jesus like Peter did. Although he was eventually restored. That's the good news about this. If you did deny Jesus, you could be restored. But you can deny him by your silence. By saying nothing. By saying nothing. That's all that has to happen for men to go to hell. It's for men to say nothing. Nothing. How can they believe the one that not heard? How can they hear without a preacher, the Bible says? But, you know, people who take verse 32 and they'll say that all they need to do is confess Jesus before men and that he, he'll confess him before the Father. But what does Matthew 7, 21 says? That everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. So confession is not doing just saying something. You know, the Catholic Church thinks that it's going to this little booth with a priest on one side and you on the other side and you open a little window and say, uh, Father, this is what I've done today, so I'll go do this and you'll be forgiven. Now, confession comes from the Greek word homologeo, and it means to agree with God. To agree with God on everything. Not on what you want to agree with them on. When he says preach the gospel, you agree with them on that. When he says go and sin no more, you agree with him on that. That's what it means to confess him. 
You're not denying what he said or what he commands you to do. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's like saying amen. It's like saying amen. That's what it is. Right. That doesn't mean you understand everything he says, but you agree with it. And what he has said, you, you are faithful to proclaim it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. This is a faithful saying. You know, something good come after he says that. For if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that last part, people get confused in verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Does that mean if you become faithless that God's going to be faithful to you? No, he remains faithful to himself. To what he just said a second ago. If you deny him, he will deny you. When the Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it's referring to those who are faithful. Not those who are unfaithful. If you forsake God, he will forsake you. That's the fact of the matter. And then Jesus says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth, and I can bring peace, but a sword. Peace is referring to harmony, a state of well-being. You know, a song harmonizes, or when we harmonize scripts, they come together perfectly like a puzzle. Jesus didn't come to make everyone perfect in harmony. He came to bring a sword, and the word for sword there can mean it's a little dagger or sword. You know, the ladies who are cutting up tomatoes, what are you doing with a tomato? Is it a whole tomato anymore? about tomatoes or cucumbers and lettuce you're dividing it up and that's what Jesus is doing he's dividing us up into two groups the sheep and the goats the sheep and the goats don't let a goat bully you into being a goat don't let a goat a goat use his horns and push you around into the goat pen stay a sheep the goat would love to do that the devil would love, the king of the goats would love for you, the goat herder, he'd love for you to become a goat. And stay that way. The sheep of Jesus know his voice, they hear his voice, and they obey his voice. And it says, for I have not come to set. And the word set there means to divide in two. To divide in two. I have come to divide in two a man and his father, a daughter and her mother, a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law, and a man's enemy with those of his own household. Christ has come to divide. Which side of division will you be on? I hope everyone here becomes a Christian and perseveres to the end. I don't know if it'll happen or not. But I hope you don't end up on the wrong side of that discussion. I hope you don't end up on the wrong side of that discussion. That you begin to fear men so much and what they can do to you that you end up on the wrong side of the division in the end. God forbid. He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you love your ungodly friend or your ungodly relative to the point where you don't want them to feel uncomfortable and you're willing to be quiet and not allow division to happen when it's going to happen, if they don't come into the sheepfold themselves, then you're saying, I love them more than I love God. You're either going to fear God or you're going to fear men. You're either going to have peace with God or you're going to have peace with men, sinful men. You're not going to have it both ways. You deny, if you deny Christ by being silent or by just literally denying him, to have peace with men, you are now an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. I'd rather have God on my side than every man in the world on my side. And the fact of the matter is, remember this cliche, it's a very biblical one. A man with God on his side is the majority no matter how many he's against. A woman with God on her side is the majority no matter how many she is against. That's the truth. 
And he who does not take up his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. Now, this is the first time Jesus mentions the cross, chronologically speaking, the first time he mentions the cross. And they thought cross, they would have thought violence, they would have thought torture, they would have thought disgrace, they would have thought heavy. Those crosses weighed about 200 pounds. Imagine carrying those on your back after being whipped and beat almost to death. Disgrace, heaviness, torture, violence. That's what they would have thought when he said cross. What do you mean, Jay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to take up violence to follow you? Not violence myself, but have violence committed against me? I'm going to have to be tortured if I'm going to follow you? have disgrace if I'm going to follow you? I'm going to have a heaviness, a burden to carry if I'm going to follow you? Yes. Yes. And follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, there's a more fuller expression of what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. And I think it's very applicable to what we're talking about right now. And Mark 8, 34 says this, When he called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever, deny, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. So we're losing our life for Christ's sake and the Gospels. We will find, we will save it. For what profit it will, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful an adulterous generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So Mark adds a couple things in there. Lay it out, not just for Jesus, but for his gospel. Ashamed of not just him, but his words. Are you ashamed of the words of Jesus? Are you willing to proclaim them to other people? Without shame? Not caring about their rejection? Even from professing Christians? Now, we all like to have friends. We all like to have peace. We all like to have uh, non-confrontation. At least I do. But let's face it. It's going to happen. And as I go through life, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower to the point where I feel like I'm, I, I'm walking on a tightrope. But so be it, Lord Jesus. That's the way you were. All you had at the end was yourself. That's all you had at the end. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow after me. It'd be so nice to be in huggy with everybody, just sing Ring Around the Rosy. We're all nice, happy family, right? Wouldn't that be nice? It's not reality. If that's you, you're part of the majority. And guess where the majority are going? If that's you, you're part of the majority. Won't you when the whole world speaks well of you? He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He's talking about the apostles there. Obviously, he's giving them his doctrine and his words of life, and by rejecting the apostles, they're rejecting him. And of course, if we're walking the truth and we're proclaiming the truth and people who reject us, who are they really rejecting? Jesus. Jesus. So you reject my words. If I'm teaching the truth, you're rejecting Jesus. He receives a prophet in the name of a prophet, so he receives a prophet's reward, and he receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, so he receives a righteous man's reward. There are gives one of these little ones, only a cup of water, in the name of the disciple. I surely said to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Those who bless a disciple of Jesus Christ, in the name of the disciple, will be rewarded by Jesus for that. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have eternal life, but if they're being kind toward a servant of God, it tells you their heart, to some degree. He's open to the truth. I read about stories of people like John Wesley and Peter Cartwright and, and um, you know, George Fox, these men who traveled around their countries preaching the gospel on horseback, and they stayed where they, people accepted them, where people let them into their house. And a lot of times they were rejected, they were sleeping on a pile of hay, they sleeping on the grass. And, but those people who received them, God will reward them, he'll bless them. It doesn't mean they're going to have eternal life, but he'll bless them in some way reward them for that. 
But when you receive the teaching of Jesus, you receive someone who's teaching the Lord Jesus' commands and teaching the truth, you receive Jesus and them. If you reject them, you reject Jesus. That's really all there is to it. So I think for some people, they need to adjust their expectations of what the Christian life is. Adjust the expectations. For those who aren't Christians, they need to count the cost. They need to count the cost. The man who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom, Jesus said. But if you were to look back, God is willing, He's able to forgive. He sends it to you. It's like He extended to Peter, who verbally rejected Jesus three times. And He restored him and he became a great apostle for him. Any questions or objections or anything you want to add? Uh, going back to the intention of God uh, for mankind and people, Daniel kind of brought this up with me a few days ago. God knows everything, mm-hmm. and uh, God did not intend mankind to uh, be in sin or the angels to sin. Mm-hmm. Why, why did he allow it? Well, allowing is different than causing. Hmm. We've talked about this a couple times in the fellowship when it comes to God's foreknowledge. That knowledge does not equal causation. And um, What I've reasoned it through is that the world that we are in, where most are going to hell, is the best world that could possibly be, where God allows free will. And if God's highest good is that he has a relationship, a free will relationship with, with his creation. This is the best that can come out from it. So if, if that, that's God's highest good regarding us, is that we need to be in relationship with him, and it must be a genuine relationship. And if that's his highest value regarding us, to be in relationship with us genuinely, there must be the opportunity for hell. There must be the opportunity for sin. And because the opportunity is there, most have chosen to go that way. It's not because God made them that way, because God made them such a way where they didn't have any ability to choose otherwise, as some others would say. It's not because he doesn't know the future, as others would say, because we've looked through the Bible many times when it comes to him knowing future free will decisions. It's very clear that he does. He does. But knowledge is not equal causation. And, um, I remember Well, he's part of creation. He's part of the seven-day, six-day creation. So he's in there. So yes, he, he fell after the garden, after everything was created. And I've done my mind about that. Um, to say otherwise, to say that God had a creation before his creation. That he created the angels before creation. But I, I see no, re- no reason to think that at all in the scriptures. Because the devil is part of creation. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't always like that. He fell. And it wasn't because of anything God did in him because of what he did himself. So, here's, here's one scripture I'll share with you regarding this. Mark, uh, Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. Now, let me sing to my well-beloved. This is God singing to Israel. A song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done in my, to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? So when it comes to people going to hell, God's done everything he can do. Everything he could do. So when it comes to Judgment Day, will men have an excuse? 
Can men say, oh, God, you had foreknowledge of what I was going to do, therefore I have to do it? No. Yeah, they, they will know better. Everyone knows better. They'll be judged according to knowledge. So, you know, these type of philosophical questions are, are not easy to answer, but I think we have to hold fast to the scriptures. I think scriptures make it clear, we've talked about many times, that God does know all the future full decisions of mankind. Doesn't mean he caused them. Doesn't mean they have excuse. Doesn't mean he didn't love those people or didn't want them to be saved. Uh, but I, I think we can all agree that God's desire for mankind, all of mankind, is that he wants to be in a love, a genuine love relation. If there's, genuine, if there's genuineness, it has to be free will on both sides. To enter into a love relationship. You know, me and my wife, when we entered a relationship, it was free will on both sides. I didn't have a button I push on the back of her neck that made her marry me. She didn't have a button to push on the back of my neck that made me marry her. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been love on either side. If either side was forced, there would not be love on either side. From the side forcing, because they really don't love me, because they're making me love them, love them. And from my side, because I'm being forced to do it. So it must be genuineness there. Yeah, and I, I agree with all this point. I just asked the question so that you might elaborate. Sure. Yeah, no problem. No problem. It's a, it's a tough question. It's a good question to ask. Um, we can't. Uh, one thing I'll say is we can't allow philosophical objections to, to distract us from what the Bible actually says. That oftentimes we'll come to a position that may sound good philosophically, like open theism, but does not support all the scriptures. But all of the scriptures say does not harmonize all the scriptures. Open theism and Calvinism, two opposite ends of the spectrum, don't do that. In the middle is the biblical viewpoint.